In today's episode, we continue to think about the ideas of the covenant. In our churches, we love to use big words. We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness. See what I mean? Inconceivable. While I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Hey everybody. We are excited to be back and talking about the word covenant with you again. Hopefully you were able to listen to the episode with Nick on Tuesday. If not, we were able to cover quite a bit about covenants and the different types of covenants you have through the Bible. And there were other things we talked about that did not make the cut for the recording, but I thought it would be good to dig into some of those things here. One of the things we discussed was marriage as a covenant. And so we're going to spend a few minutes talking about that on this episode. But before we get to that, I think we need to go back and at least review quickly the definition that we had on Tuesday. Nick said he always thinks of a covenant as a contract. And that is a perfectly wonderful way to think about covenants, to think about it as an agreement that is made between two or more parties. Oftentimes, when we think about covenants, we think about the contract or agreement that is made between God and his people. Or if we're thinking about marriage, we might say it is between God and a husband and a wife. So a three-party contract in that case. This is why scripture can say, for instance, in Genesis 2.24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Or Jesus, who quotes that passage, but also says over in Matthew 19, verse 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Scripture makes a big deal about marriage being the coming together of two people, a man and a woman who become one flesh, both in Genesis and in Matthew. And that coming together, that happens because of God joining these two together, that is what we would typically call a covenant. Now, if you go back and think about covenants in terms of the ones we mentioned on Tuesday, that God made a covenant with Noah, what he's doing is he is telling Noah, this is what I'm going to do. This is you and I coming together in agreement that this is the way things are going to work from now on. In that case, it was not flooding the world again and destroying the world with water. Or if you think about the Abraham covenant with God, uh, there you've got Abraham and God coming to an agreement that if Abraham would trust in God, God would give him a seed. And that was ratified with circumcision, that Abraham would now be a a person or the head of a family that would become the people of God. So Abraham and God are coming together and becoming one or becoming an agreement in that covenant. Marriage is the same thing. You've got a man and a woman who are joining together 
in agreement. They are becoming one, and they become one because God joins them together. It's an agreement they make with each other and an agreement that they, as one person, make with God. Now, that whole concept of oneness is something that our world struggles with because we see marriages work and fail in so many different ways in our world. But the ideal marriage, as is presented in Scripture, is that a man and a woman will come together as one person. And the way I like to think of that would be to take the passages like, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and relate that to marriage. That a, Those are the four parts of our human makeup. That's what makes us human. We have a body, we have a heart, we have a mind, and we have a soul or a spirit. Well, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, they are coming together as one person. So those four parts that make up us as humans come together in agreement in a marriage. So a man and a woman should come together and be one in heart. You might want to think of that in terms of emotionally. A man and a woman should come together and as one person function together emotionally. That means the man is going to concern, be concerned about the things of his wife. The wife is going to be concerned about the things of her husband. They are going to weep together. They are going to rejoice together. They are going to experience life together, all the ups and downs, and do that together. A man and a woman would be joined together in mind. And you might want to think that in terms of the thinking or the, the thought processes that make up our lives. So a man and a woman should be talking and communicating and coming together in agreement as much as that is possible. They should function together as one person because they communicate so well, they talk together so well, they are agreeing so much because they are functioning as one person. There you've also got the sense of coming together in their bodies, their strength. One obvious application of that would be an intimacy. But I think there's also a sense in which it's just the daily functioning of life, that a man and a woman should function together as one person. And then there's also that spirit or soul aspect of this, and we can think of that in terms of spiritually. A man and a woman should come together and be one in spirit. They should be one in their pursuit of spiritual things. And so that oneness is all part of what makes marriage work. It's part of what makes the covenant of marriage so important. And honestly, it's part of what makes the covenant of marriage so permanent. Matthew chapter 19, verse 1 through 12, tells the story of Jesus being confronted by the Jews. And they want to know if a man can divorce his wife for any reason. And of course, Jesus teaches absolutely not. Uh, that, that is not the way it has been from the beginning. Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 12, tells the same story where Jesus is defending the permanence of marriage. Luke 16, verse 18 
says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There, you've got a very clear standard for marriage being a lifelong commitment. It is something that we do covenantally. It is something that we devote ourselves to, and there's no end to it. Or at least the end of it is at the end of life. Now, there are what people like to call the exception clauses in Matthew chapter 19 and in Matthew chapter 5. But what I want to focus on in this episode is that when you join in covenant with somebody else, you are joining together in a very serious agreement and contract. And that agreement that you make is something that should last for the remainder of your life. That, that is of utmost importance for us as we try to truly understand the seriousness and the permanence of being in a covenant with somebody else. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the last two verses says, A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, in my opinion. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Here again, Paul is very clear that a wife should remain with her husband for life because the covenant that she made with him was for life. And if we make an agreement with somebody, we make a covenant arrangement that is ratified by God, where God has joined a man and a woman together, we should take that covenant seriously. To make that kind of covenant work, we have to be aware that it takes a lot of effort. It takes diligent attention. It takes us being willing to put ourselves aside and serve our spouse. We are joining ourselves to the other person. We are agreeing to serve them, to put them above ourselves. We are agreeing that we will love them, that we will do what is necessary for their benefit. We are committing ourselves to them. And that's exactly how marriage is supposed to work. That's why marriage is such an enjoyable thing. It's because it meets needs. It meets the needs that we have that God left us with knowing that man should not be alone and it was better for him to have a wife. There's a passage over in Ephesians chapter 5, and it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading. It starts in verse 22, and it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Now, I want you to note several things about that passage of Scripture that I think are of great importance. First of all, notice the reciprocal relationship you have in this ideal marriage arrangement. The wives are respecting and submitting to their husbands. The husbands are loving their wives sacrificially. He is doing everything he can to present her a beautiful and lovely person. He is treating her with great respect and deference, and he is honoring her with the honor that she deserves. That reciprocal relationship where each person is doing their best for the other is the only way that covenants can truly work. That's the way all the covenants have worked since the beginning. God promises to Noah not to flood. Well, God keeps his promise. God makes an agreement with Abraham, and Abraham must leave his country and go to the land God is showing him, and he must trust that God is going to give him an heir. You've got God making agreements with the children of Israel, and God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But they did not meet their end of the covenant. They constantly rejected God and failed God and didn't do the thing they were supposed to do. And eventually, God gave them warning after warning after warning, and eventually, they ended up being let loose from their covenant, even though God did all that he was supposed to do. Well, it's interesting, even in that case, while God did allow them to pass away, he did keep all of the promises he made to bring salvation through them. Continually, God shows us that if you get into a covenant relationship with somebody, you do everything you can to keep your side of that bargain. The other thing you'll note here in this passage of scripture is verse 32, where he says, this mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Ultimately, what we find is we're not just in a covenant relationship with our spouse, but if you are a Christian, you are in a relationship with the church and with Christ as the church. So those same lessons we learn about what it means to serve a spouse, that you have a reciprocal relationship, that you have a role that you're supposed to play, that you might be responsible for loving and respecting and honoring, well, we're to do the same thing to Christ as the church. And then we are also supposed to do the same thing for one another in the church. Think about how many parallels there are that we come together with God's people after making our commitment to Christ in baptism. And then we join ourselves to God's people. We agree to serve God's people. We agree to put them above ourselves. We agree to love God's people and commit to God's people. We love them. We respect them. We honor them. We receive love. We receive respect. We receive honor. 
we are in a relationship as God's people with God's people. And that's to be expected when you read things like Jesus's words when he initiated the Lord's Supper. And he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, as Christians, we are part of a covenant. When we are joined to Christ, we are part of a relationship, an agreement, a contract with Christ. And part of meeting that contract is being a part of God's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 through 17, also talking about the Lord's Supper, makes this point. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Now listen to this. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. When we come together and we break the bread of the Lord's Supper and we drink the cup of the Lord's Supper, we are enacting the covenant relationship that we have not just with Christ, but with one another. We become essentially one flesh with the church. Here it says one body, but I think you can easily see the parallel there. We become one body with the church. We become one flesh because we are in a covenant with them. See, covenants are agreements. Uh, in your marriage, in your relationship with Christ, in your role as a part of the kingdom of God or the church, you make agreements to do what you can do and meet the responsibilities of those relationships. So my question for you is, are you meeting your end of the bargain? In your marriage, are you loving and respecting and honoring your spouse the way you should? In your relationship with Christ, are you serving him? Are you letting God be your God and you be a disciple in his kingdom? And for your local congregation, with whom you serve Christ, are you doing all you can to be a great part of the work they are doing? You see, luckily, whenever we get into a covenant relationship of which God is one of the parties, God always does his part. When it comes to our salvation, God has a home waiting for us. When it comes to our marriage, God is always willing to hold us together and to give us the teachings we need in order to have a lasting and fulfilling marriage. But my question for you is, if God's gonna do his part, are you willing to do yours? Thank you for listening to today's episode of Preach Impediments, and I certainly do hope this has been helpful to you as you consider your own covenants and your own agreements you've made. If you've enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to Tuesdays or other previous episodes. You can find them at preachimpediments.com or on any of your podcast players where this episode is aired. If you'll also check out edenhollow.com, who makes this podcast possible, and check out the books they have available there for your purchase. And as always, we hope we have been able to take words that are somewhat difficult and boil them down in a way that makes them not just more understandable, but more applicable in your life. Thank you again for listening to Preach Impediments, and we'll see you next time.